We're going to continue the book of Romans. We're going to pick up in chapter 5. Let's just start right there with this first opening thought. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. This statement is a summary of chapters 1 through 4. And you're like, yeah, but you spent like a long time preaching on this. I know, but this is a summary of that right there. Like he again is pointing our attention to the idea that you and I have right standing before God. Not because we got it all figured out. Not because we're good people. Not because we're doing better than anybody else. We are justified by faith. It's a gift that God has given us that we accept by trusting him. And that is it. And what Paul is going to say and what he's going to try to show is that this changes everything for us. This changes the way we interact with the world. This changes the way we view the world. This, this changes the way we view ourselves. This changes everything for us. But let's keep going. Look at what he says in verse one and two. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so because of this, we have, we have peace with God. We stand in grace. We have hope in front of us. And so what, again, Paul is saying is that us being having this confidence in our right standing before, before God, you and I knowing that we have a right standing before God changes everything for us. And that makes sense, right? Because that, that, we see that in relationships. Like our confidence and our standing with somebody else affects the way that we view ourselves and affects the way we view that relationship, right? Like it's the, that confidence is the difference between uh, a kid being honest with his parents and a kid lying to protect themselves, right? That confidence and that standing is the difference between a coworker telling you what you want to hear versus telling you what you need to hear. That confidence is, is the difference even in relationships. You know, Angela and I were, were talking just this week uh, about when we were dating. We dated uh, at the end of high school and through college and, and while we were dating, we were like, you're, you're at the beginning, you're not really confident in where you stand with the other person. You're still trying to impress, right? So every time we went on dates, I always wear like sleeveless shirts. You see the gun show, you know what I mean? Like, like we're always trying to impress each other, right? And, and Angela's version of that is for a very long time, I did not see her without makeup on. For a very long time. We could have an 8 a.m. class. She's going to have makeup on, right? Let's just be honest. I wasn't there. It's 8 o'clock. But anyway, she always had makeup on all the time. And I remember like as her confidence grew in her standing with me, as she knew how much I cared for her, she knew how much I would be there for her. Like I remember the day she was like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna let you see me without makeup on. It was a big deal. We had talked about it. I used to tease her about it. I'm like, just let me see. Like, what could you pop? You have a third eye. Like, what are you hiding? Like, just let me. And so I remember it was a big deal. And she comes down out of her dorm and there she is. She comes out without her makeup on. She says, hi. And I know this is a moment. This is a sensitive moment. I know she's vulnerable. I know this is a big deal. So I have to say the right thing. So I said, sir, I'm waiting for my girlfriend. <laughs> now, look, okay, all right, look, no, I didn't say that, okay? I didn't say that. We're married. I'm, I'm not an idiot, all right? Yeah, I didn't say that. But here's, here's my whole point, is that our confidence in our right standing with one another affects the way that we live with one another. It affects the way that we move throughout the world with one another. In the same way, that's what Paul is saying, but our right standing with God, it changes everything for us. That confidence should change everything for us. And Paul, like, he's not playing games. He doesn't go through, like, any warm-ups. Let me show you, let me show you how it changes this and this. He goes straight to the biggest, and he goes straight to how it should affect the way we experience suffering in the world. So look at Romans 5, 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. I want you to think right now about a time in your life, maybe recent, maybe you're in it right now, a time of suffering, a time of difficulty, a time of affliction. Unfortunately, probably none of us have to think too hard to find that, right? Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's a health issue you're having or health issue someone else that you care about is having. Maybe it's financial. I don't know what it is. 
But we probably don't have to think too hard about that. And, and what Paul is saying is that in our suffering, the way we experience that suffering should be different because of who we are in Jesus, because of our right standing in Jesus, because we are secure in who we are in Jesus. The way we experience suffering should be different. Those things in your life, you should experience them in a different way. And I'm gonna go ahead and guess that there are some people in the room and probably all of us to some extent in the room, we have some ideas around suffering that don't actually line up with who we are in Jesus anymore. And I wanna address those uh, this morning. Let me, let me start with the first one is this. I think some of us may be thinking of our suffering in our lives as a punishment from an angry God. Like I am being, I am being punished right now. Like I am suffering because I did something wrong. God is mad and now it's time to punish me, right? Because punishment in our world, it just makes sense. Like it's all happened to us. We've all been there. And, and it's just something we get. Like punishment seems to make sense. It seems to equal justice in our mind. Like righting a wrong. I remember sitting in a red light and this guy like blew through the red light and I got so angry. Do you guys ever do that? You see people break a law that you break too and you just get like really angry. And so I'm stopping and he like blows through the red light and I was just like, ah, oh, you should have to wait with me. And I remember just like, God, this is so wrong. And then like a cross from us, God heard my prayer. And a cross from us, these blue lights turn on and I didn't see the cop there. I guess he didn't either. And the cop pulls out. Guys, you'd have thought I won the Super Bowl, right? Like I was like, I was like, yeah, like I was celebrating. Like I was pumping my fist. I got out and did the T-bow in the road. Like I was like, I was so pumped that that happened, right? And don't look at me with those eyes of judgment. I know you do the same thing, right? You've never been on the turnpike. Someone speed past you. You see him get pulled over and you laugh as you drive by. Like you don't do that. All right, whatever. Anyway, my point is we like to think like punishment makes sense to us. It makes sense. It feels like that's just what happens. You do wrong. You get punished, right? Like something happens. Even people outside of the Christian faith, they'll say things like karma. What are they saying? They're saying like punishment makes sense to us. So it's, it's easy for us when we're dealing with suffering to draw that line between our suffering and punishment. To say, well, God must be angry because if he wasn't angry at something that I've done, then I wouldn't be experiencing this. I wouldn't be suffering. But can we break that down? Can we deconstruct that? Because look at what Romans 5.1 says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about peace, typically we think about it in this way. We have a saying, right? We say peace and jelly. No, quiet, right? We say peace and quiet. Those things go together. And so when things are quiet, we say, well, that's peace, right? Like when people aren't throwing punches, we have peace. And like parents, isn't that how you feel? Like when there's no one arguing or screaming or whatever, it's just quiet. You go, okay, that's peace, right? And typically it's not, they're just like reloading or whatever they're doing, right? Like they're getting ready. But that's what you think about. You think like that's peace. Well, this idea of peace, the biblical view of peace, it comes from a Hebrew word shalom in the Old Testament. And that word shalom, it's a picture of wholeness. And so it's not just a picture of not, uh, not attacking. It's also a picture of, of being reconciled, of being together. Let me give you an example. If, let's say you get into a fight with your spouse and you guys are going at it you're pushing each other's buttons, right? Like you're just really getting into it, right? And then you realize you gotta, you gotta separate, you gotta calm down. So you both leave the room. You both go to other parts of the house, right? And every th- throughout the house, it's quiet, it's quiet. And to the dog and cat, there's peace. But is that real peace, right? No, it's quiet, but it's not peace. When do you have peace? When do you have shalom? You have shalom when you come back together And when you work it out, when you reconcile, when the anger that you have towards one another is replaced with care and concern for one another, that's when you have shalom. And that's the picture of wholeness. In fact, this was the shalom that God intended the people of Israel to bring to the world. 
This was a shalom that he intended the, the kings of Israel to bring to the nations of the world. Not just that nations would stop fighting, but that nations would care for one another, right? That's shalom, that's wholeness. And that's the type of peace that Jesus made for us with God. Look at Isaiah, look at the book of Isaiah chapter 53. But he was wounded, Jesus, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us shalom. And with his stripes, we are healed. God is not just not against you. He's not just not punishing you. God is also very much for you. He's incredibly for you. That's what shalom means. And so if we go, to, if we go back to our passage in Romans 5, skip down to verse 6. Look at what Paul says. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our most against him, he was at his most for us. That's what shalom means. That's the type of peace that you have with God. That when you are at your most against him, he is at his most for you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And some of you in this room, you have a disciplinarian view of God. I just gotta stay on his good side. As long as I don't make him mad, as long as he doesn't have to come after me, as long as he doesn't punish me, like we're good. That's not shalom. That may be quiet. That may be by some people's definition peace, but it's not shalom. And that's what we have in Jesus. So listen to me. Your suffering is not evidence that the peace of God between you and him is broken. Your suffering is not evidence that God is not for you. Do you know why? Because you can't break his peace. When you go in the book of Isaiah and it talks about Jesus, look at what it calls him. It calls him in Isaiah 9, the prince of shalom. And look at what it says about his his peace. His shalom, there will be no end. You can't break his peace. You can't break that shalom between you and God. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing anyone else can do. There's nothing your circumstances can do. God is for you. So your evidence, your your suffering is not evidence that God is against you. And I know what happens in the darkness of our suffering. We hear these whispers and you're hearing these whispers that you deserve this. And this is the anger of God against you. And this is some sort of punishment. May you remind yourselves, may you speak back against those whispers that I serve the Prince of Shalom and his shalom can't be broken. God is for me. And so your suffering is never evidence that God is against you. It's not evidence that God is not for you. It's not evidence that he is not in your corner. It's not evidence that you don't have peace with him. He is the prince of shalom and that shalom will never end. He is for you. There's another way that we view suffering that I think is, is a dangerous and unhelpful way that maybe we even get from this text. And, and let's look at it. Romans 5, 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And it's this idea, and maybe if you grew up in church, you heard it talked about this way. I know I did, that our sufferings are some sort of gift that God gives us, right? It's a gift. You need it. So it's a, it's a gift. And so that's what that must mean. Rejoice in your, the gift of your suffering. Can I ask you, as you think about the sufferings that you're experiencing right now, anybody, could anyone stand up here and honestly thank God for that? Does anybody want to? Does anybody want to stand up and thank God for the health problems in your family? Does anyone want to stand up and thank God for the relational problems? We've been praying for this four-year-old who's in our congregation who's now up in Memphis at St. Jude being treated for a brain tumor. Anybody in here want to stand up and thank God for that brain tumor? God forbid, no. No, absolutely not. That is not what this means. So what in the world does it mean? Because if it's not that we have some weird, sick, twisted view of suffering that for some reason this is a gift, what does it possibly mean to rejoice in our sufferings? And, and here's, here's what it means. 
We need to look at 2 Corinthians. Look at Paul's suffering in a very specific way. He says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So Paul is saying, I have very real suffering in my body. And I like how he describes it. He calls it a messenger of Satan, right? And so I don't know if you've ever had any type of suffering or difficulty or inconvenience that you have described as a messenger of Satan. Could I go ahead and encourage you to do that for the rest of your life? Could you just say it's biblical? Just do that for the rest of your life. Just call it a messenger of Satan. You know what I mean? Like just when anything goes wrong, like this guacamole is a messenger of Satan, right? Like whatever it is, all right? Just do that from now on. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is Paul saying? Is Paul saying, man, I love it when people smack me in the face. I love it when people insult me. I just, I just can't get enough. God, thank you for the, the cruelty of other people. No, what's he saying? He's rejoicing in what? The power of God is at work in his life. The power of God rests on him when he is weak. The power of God rests on him in those difficult moments. So he's not rejoicing because of his suffering. He's rejoicing within his suffering because of God is at work. It reminds me of a story. I know I've shared this before, but it's just so powerful. I, uh, Joni Erickson Tata, I think she's a superhero. Uh, at 17, um, she dove into the shallow end of a pool and has lived her life as a quadriplegic. And she tells this story a lot about one day standing before God in her glorified body where she can walk again. And she said, I hope I can bring my wheelchair to heaven and have it next to me. And, and here's what she always says. She says, I'll turn to Jesus and say, Lord, do you see that wheelchair right there? Well, you were right. When you said that in this world, we would have trouble because that wheelchair was a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So thank you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. And now you can send that wheelchair to hell if you want, right? So is, is she thankful for the wheelchair? Is she praising God for the wheelchair? Absolutely not. She wants that thing thrown in hell. What is she grateful for? She says, I thank you for what you did in my life through it. And that's what we rejoice in. That's, what we, that's, what, that's where our confidence comes from, is that I know that God isn't gonna waste an ounce of my suffering. I know that, right? And so I can rejoice because God is at work. We have not been forgotten. And I know, again, back in these dark moments of our suffering, we hear these whispers that we have been forgotten, that, that God isn't blessing us, that he isn't at work, but it's just not true. And so we can rejoice in the middle of our sufferings, not because of the suffering, but because God has not forgotten us. He's not abandoned us and he's at work. And what Paul does is in, the, in, in chapter five of Romans, he, he lays out what God does for all of us in the middle of our sufferings. So let's, let's look at it real quick. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. So, so let's look at that. Let's break that down. Suffering produces endurance. That endurance is a single-mindedness. It's a focus. I've told you guys before, um, when I was in high school, I wanted to, uh, I went out to, to, to join the basketball team in my high school. And when I went there, they have conditioning before, which conditioning, if, you, if you've never done it, it's just run till you throw up and then run some more. And so that, that's what I was doing. And I was struggling. All right. Like I was struggling. I, I have not, I don't know if you can tell, but I am not an athlete. Uh, I don't know what I, I don't know what this is, but it's not athletic. Uh, and so I was like running and, and, and here's the thing in that moment, 
Everything else fell away when I was running. There's only two things that mattered, oxygen and don't fall down. Like that was it. Like keep going and breathe. And that's all I thought about. And I think about like my teenage years, there's so many things I worried about. There's so many things on my mind. Like I, 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 every day I worried that would I get home in time to watch MTV before my parents got home because we were Southern Baptists and I wasn't allowed to watch it, right? Like would I get home in time? Would I beat my brother and sister to the computer so I could get on AOL Instant Messenger and tell my girlfriend in high school, what's up, right? Like, like I had all of, these worries. Like I had all these things, but when I was there, when I was suffering on that track, all that fell away. Like it didn't matter. And, and in a way, that's a gift. That's a gift that God gives us in that moment is that there's so many secondary things. There's so many things that we trust. There's so many things that have our attention that don't matter, that really aren't, uh, they, they aren't for our joy and they just fall away in that moment. And what matters is him. It's an opportunity to find focus on him. I, I, I remember, um, I've told you this before, but I remember being in the hospital with my daughter. She was dealing with some breathing issues and it was like the second or third time we'd been there that year. And, and I remember sitting up with her and, and just being overwhelmed by the whole situation. Can I tell you, there's a lot of things that were really important to me before we went in the hospital. There were a lot of things. I was really worried about something that was going on in our house. I was worried about something going on in the church. I was worried about this. And, and there's a lot of things I was trusting. I was trusting this comfort that this was gonna make me happy. I was trusting this over here that it was gonna provide for me. All these other things. And what suffering did was it just kind of turned down the noise. You, you guys know what I'm talking about? And all the suffering, like all that stuff just falls away. I don't care what happens to the house. I don't care what, I don't care what happens over here. And, and all the things that I had trusted, they couldn't touch what I was going through. I saw them as weak. I saw them as the, the, the idols that they were, the God substitutes that ultimately couldn't do what God could do. And so in that moment, I had an opportunity to focus on him because he was there. But what I'm telling you is, is I think in the middle of your suffering, one of the gifts that God gives us is an opportunity to let go of everything else and to refocus on him. It's an opportunity to see all of the other things that we built our life on as, as what they are, as weak, as God's substitutes, as things that won't provide what we want them to, and to let go and to refocus on him. And then it, it continues. Look at what else God does. It says, our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And this character, it's a testedness. It's a maturity. You know, uh, sometimes my wife and I, we have four kids, and sometimes, especially people that are like, they, they're new parents, they'll always say to us, oh, I don't know how you do it with four. And I always want to say, like, I don't know how you do it with one. Because I remember going from zero to one. Zero to one was a big deal, right? When you got parents, am I right? Like, when you had no kids and then you go to one kid, it's just like, how does anyone do this? Why did we do this, right? You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it changes everything. I remember, um, I remember just a lot of fear in that time of our life with the, with the first one. I thought everything I did was gonna kill my kid. Like, that's what I, I was just convinced. I was convinced that, well, if we get the, if our satellite dish is turned the wrong way, it's gonna kill him. I don't know how, but it's gonna kill him. Like, I was freaking out over everything. I remember, I remember we had him, he was on the couch and we were um, making, like, he was all, like, swaddled up and we were making his bottle and he just slid off the couch head first and just dunk, like hits the floor on his head. And I was like, I was like, that's it, he's dead. And then and I told him, I was like, you know what? Uh, we could stop saving for college because obviously he's not gonna be smart. Like, look what we did. Like we broke, we broke him. We broke the boy. And so like, I had like all this, I had this unbelievable fear that only a first time parent could have. Then we went from one to three. I don't recommend that. I recommend one to two, uh, but we went one to three. Twins will do that to you. But I, I remember that was a hard time. There was a lot of things that were, but you know what? we definitely weren't as fear-driven as we were before. Like, I was pretty certain that nothing was gonna, like, kill my kids because that first one, man, he had been through it. And I was afraid of everything. 
And here he is, right? You know, like, here he is, you know? Like, I, I had gone from, please don't do that, to like, he'll learn. He's got to learn somehow. Like that, and like, it just, it just changed. And I remember, like, with my, when we went from one to three, I wasn't afraid that they were going to die. I was afraid I was going to die. I was so tired, like, I was just going to stop living. And then we went, from, we went from three to four. And can I tell you, can I just be super honest with you? You could probably throw two more kids in our home, and it would take us maybe a week to figure it out. Because once you go to zone defense, you know what I'm talking about? Like once you're in zone, like it's no big deal. Like you're just dealing with problems as they come your way. And, and honestly, what had happened was by the time we got to four, we were tested. Like we were tested. In our parenting, we had, we had matured. And so like we could handle it, you know, like we could handle it. And, and here's what I'm saying. I think in suffering, as we focus on God and as we walk with him through it, um, what he does is he takes those, those difficulties and he grows this maturity of faith in us that, that isn't grown on the easy days, isn't grown on vacation. It's grown on the difficult days. It's grown in the valley. It's grown in those dark days. I mean, think about last week we talked about Abraham and Abraham's big final test that everybody knows about when he offers his son Isaac to be sacrificed. How in the world did he have the maturity of faith to trust God in a moment like that? Well, it wasn't overnight. It was built over time. And that's what God does for us in our suffering. I had a, I had a great childhood and I had a great like young adulthood. I, I remember things just like like worked out. And, and I'm not saying that because like I, like as a brag, like, yeah, I'm so great. I got it all figured out. No, I'm an idiot. I was just floating through life. I had great parents. I had great uh, church. I had a great community. And so I remember like in high school, like I, I want to go get a job. So I just went and got one. Like I, I walked in, I was like, can I have a job? And they're like, yes, you can. And I got a job. I remember in high school, graduating high school, barely. Um, and as I graduated, I was like, I want to go to this college. I applied to one college. It's the one I wanted to go to. And I was like, I need scholarships. And they're like, we got you, fam. And they gave me scholarships. And that's where I went. I went to that school. I remember after that, like, I needed a job. Same thing. Like, I walked into a place, like, can I have a job? And they're like, yes, you can have a job. And, and that's just how my life went. All the way up through, like, I want to go to seminary. I applied to one seminary. That's the one I wanted to go to. I went. And it was there. There was, a, there was a job waiting for me at a church there, too. Great. All worked out. Cool. And I remember, like, when the wheels finally fell off. And can I say, by the way, that's not, like, a great way to grow up. Like, sometimes I'm praying, like, God, would you just, like, crush my children's dreams when they're like teenagers you know what I mean because I was just like happy idiot in my 20s you know what I mean I'm just I'm just like everything works out I don't know what's wrong with you guys like everything just working out why are you so sad all the time like oh because life's hard like I didn't know that all right and I remember I remember being at this church and the wheels fell off like like I I was first time like I really saw like my dreams die right in front of me I remember it was it was one of the only times in our marriage I can remember me sobbing and my wife comforting me because typically when I sob she mocks me but in this moment I remember her I remember her like comforting me and um that was hard but you know as, as I look back since then oh I don't know what happened it broke my streak real good because the wheels fall off all the time because that's just life the wheels just fall off all the time like I, I've had moments where I saw the next 15 years of my life and I saw it as clear as day. And then poof, it's gone. Something happened, it's just gone. You've you been there? I've had moments where I thought, this person, this friendship I've got, like this is my ride or die. You know what I'm saying? Like me and this dude, like we are gonna change the world together, right? Like we are, he's got my back, I got his back. We're gonna go into hell with water guns and take over. Like we are, like we got it, right? 
and then something happens and there's trust broken and there's betrayal and poof, it's gone. So the wheels fall off all the time. But I tell you, now it doesn't hit me like it used to hit me. And why is that? Well, because God didn't waste an ounce of my suffering. He took it and as I trusted him, he built a mature faith and he built it over and over and over again. And I don't know, I can't tell you why you're going through the suffering that you're going through. But one of the good things I can tell you is what, what God is up to. And one of the things he's doing is he's not wasting an ounce of it, not an ounce. Instead, he's using it to mature us and to grow us. Um, And that's a beautiful thing. The third thing, the last thing, he says that character produces hope. And what is hope? Hope is just faith applied to the future. We say here at Grace all the time, good is ahead. We've said it already this morning. We're going to say it again before we leave. Good is ahead. You know why we say good is ahead? Because good is behind. Because God has been here. We've seen his goodness over and over and over again. And God doesn't change. And so why in the world would his goodness stop today? Why would it stop tomorrow? Why would it stop a a year from now, 10,000 years from now? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so because good is behind, I can say that good is ahead. And so we can have that hope. You know, last week we talked about what suffering tries to do is it tries to trap us in fear, right? And and how does it do it? By playing the what-if game. Anybody in here a worrier, anxiety? You don't have to raise your hand. I know that's gonna like overwhelm you. You're gonna be like, did I raise it too high? And you're gonna worry about it all day. Like, don't worry about that. But like, here's the thing, even if you're a worrier and you do the what if game, even if you're not a worrier, I'm not a worrier, right? Like I'm, I'm again, I'm that happy little idiot who thinks everything's gonna work out all the time. But when I get in the middle of suffering, I play that what if game like a champ. I am varsity lettered and everything, right? When it comes to the what if game. And I remember uh, I was at a church and another opportunity where the wheels fell off and I started spiraling in that what if game. What, what if this happens? And what if this happens to this person? Then what if... What if this ministry falls apart? And then what, what if this happens? And then this, and then I, what, if, what if I can't work here anymore? And then what if I can't provide for my family? What if my kids think I'm a failure and they slap me? Like, what if I, you know what I mean? Like, I, I have all these, I'm just like losing it. And I remember I went and I met with um, a friend of mine who was at the church entwined in all of the same things I'm talking about, all the things I'm worried about. He'd walk with the Lord longer than I'd been alive. And so I'm telling him all these things and he's not alarmed at all. Like, just not, like, n- nope, not moving. And I was like, hang on, dude, why aren't you freaking out? Like I came so we could freak out together. You know what I mean? Like you're older than me, so I thought maybe you knew a better way to freak out and we would just freak out in a new way, right? Like why are you not freaking out? And here's what he said. He said, I have been, me and God have been through much worse and he's always been there for me. Why would he stop now? And what's he saying? He's saying good is ahead because good is behind. All he's saying is that, look, I'm looking back and I'm seeing what God has done for me. I'm seeing that he's proven himself over and over and over again. I have, I have turned my attention to him and he has grown a mature faith in me. He has shown up over and over and over again. And so I know that he's going to keep showing up. And so the reality is some of us in this room, we got to stop playing the what if game. We need to start playing the what has game, right? What has God done for me? What has God, how has God already shown up in my life? Because my guess is you already have the stories, You already have the stories that could point your hearts towards hope. You already have the moments in your life where God showed up. Do you remember that time he showed up for you and your family? Do you remember that time he showed up for you financially? Do you remember that time he showed up for you in your season of loneliness and he brought a community around you? Do you remember those moments? Do you remember that time where no one else was around, but he was there? Do you remember those times? He's the same he's always been. 
And so if he's been there before, he will be there again. And, and I want to close with this. Look at Romans 5.5. 5. Look at how he describes hope. And hope does not put us to shame. In other words, we will not be embarrassed for hoping in God. We will never regret it. We will never say, well, that was a dumb decision. I can't believe I put my hope in God. We will never be there. Our hope will not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You will not be put to shame by hope because you are so loved by God. You always have been. You are and you always will be. Can we pray? Father, I am grateful that even in a moment like this, that none of us are alone. That I know there are brothers and sisters in this room who are in the middle of suffering. Suffering is not a memory, it is their present reality. It is, it is the thing that is, is over their entire life right now. There's a health problem in their home that is, is governing the rest of their life. There's a relational problem in their, friend, in their circle of friends that is, that is just a cloud hanging over them right now. There's a health problem that's in their body that if, even if they wanted to um, forget it, they can't. And so God, there's real suffering in the room. And because of that, I'm sure that there are real whispers in their ears right now to say that they've been forgotten, to say that you are not with them, to say that you were not for them, to say even that they deserve this punishment. But God, may you encourage all of us with the truth of your word that we've read today, that you're the Prince of Shalom, and you've secured that Shalom for all of us. God, you are not against any of us. And you're not just not against us, you are for us. So much so that when we were at our most unlovable, you loved us with your life. When we were at our most against you, you were for us. And that hasn't changed. God, would you encourage our hearts, my brothers and sisters who are struggling right now in the middle of suffering, would they be encouraged to know that just as you've always been there, you will always be there that they can point their attention to hope, that they can believe that good is ahead because you are ahead of them. We love you and we're grateful. It's in Jesus' name.